Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here at Authentic Biochemistry Studios. This is the Ides of March, that is the 15th, year is 2022. Today, we are going to continue our discussion of diabetes. Um, I've done a video lecture recently, and I've also compiled about 10 of the audio lectures, so we've gotten well into this arc of discussion on a very major debilitating disease in humans. And I do not want to um, stop prematurely. I want to make sure that we cover all the ground. And we have a lot of biochemistry really to discuss because this involves lipid metabolism. I think that's probably why it, there is more of a plenum of discussion than maybe if it was uh, carbohydrate or uh, certainly if it was just protein, like in proteinopathies. Of course, I'm kidding, but not really because lipid metabolism does require probably double the amount of lecture time uh, to be able to cover it authentically. And that's what we do here. So let's get into this discussion of disease association with diabetes. Now, you'll remember that I've mentioned on multiple occasions that early studies in rodent models have suggested a high-fat diet was one of the principal um, inducers of obesity in mammals. Now, this did not take into account the fact that uh, rodents um, can metabolize because of their microflora and their digestive system um, non-soluble carbohydrates such as cellulose, hemicellulose, and pectin and utilize that carbon directly as an energy source. Of course, humans are monogastric, do not have the enzymes which will break down beta 1,4 glucan linkages, and therefore will not be able to obtain carbon from that source. So that cuts out a whole discussion of uh, essentially one of the major components of carbon um, and the diet for rodent as compared to humans. So the vast... Uh, misunderstanding that went on in the nutritional and in the medical sciences for decades was um, regularly inundated with lipid biochemists such as myself and others who have more, even more prominence <laughs> explaining that very likely obesity in humans was linked to carbohydrate uh, uptake in the diet because carbohydrates of course are directly converted to lipid and the entire uh, system is set up so that when uh, fat intake is increased, lipogenesis in the liver is decreased. And when fat intake is diminished in low-fat diet, both protein, for, and amino acids from protein after proteolysis, and of course carbohydrate, are directly converted to depot fat. And hence the dysregulation for insulin secretion and then insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes was obviously linked to the carbohydrate component. Eventually, the American Medical Association and the American Nutritional Associations and Organizations came around, this was well after the year 2000, uh, and admitted that, yeah, higher, our carbohydrate diet was a great contributor to obesity and the obesity pandemic. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's been um, uh, well 
confronted in terms of what people still consume. They still consume a, har a much higher carbohydrate to lipid ratio diet than probably what um, human evolution in terms of metabolism um, had developed under. Okay, So the amount of lipid in the diet, if it's kept at about 30 to 40%, is much more improving of diminishing obesogenic uh, environment than having carbohydrate up over 50%. Okay. So obesity then in humans is primarily high carbohydrate, but really just high caloric density diet. But also obesity can be because of that um, diet and because of sedentary lifestyle and maybe some hereditary factors and maybe also some uh, pharmacotherapy that the people are already on, all that can contribute to endocrine disorders, all, uh, the full endocrine, but also paracrine and autocrine disorders. And of course, the inflammatory response, which leads to obesity. Now, obesity itself is a pro-inflammatory disease. That means you're going to have, uh, at the first level, increases in reactive oxygen and nitrogen, and that can directly cause damage to chromatin, membrane, and protein. <clears throat> when it causes DNA damage directly, that can cause, that can uh, jumpstart a pathway to hepatocellular carcinoma. But obesity, if it's gone down the normal pathophysiological route and doesn't come from mutations leading directly to carcinoma, obesity will lead to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we talked about quite a bit, and that can go directly to hepatic hyperplasia. Hepatic hyperplasia, which includes uh, fibrosis, can also lead directly to hepatocellular carcinoma. But again, going down the pathophysiological route, after non-alcoholic fatty liver disease has been diagnosed, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis can occur, that is inflammation of the hepatocytes, then fibrosis because of the programmed cell death linked to the inflammatory response, and then the fibrosis to cirrhosis, and cirrhosis ultimately can yield. Again, it's not a cause and effect, it's a correlation to HCC. So this is sort of the paradigmatic way to develop liver cancer. Now, a couple of things you have to keep in mind. A steady increase in the BMI has definitely become a worldwide pandemic. And it's currently estimated to cause more than 100,000 cancer-related deaths um, per annum in the United States alone. Okay, so maybe turn, maybe multiply that times four or five. You might get as many as a half a million people dying from cancer directly related to obesity pandemic. That's and that's not including all the metabolic disorders, right? Now, there are two viruses, the HBV and the HCV, and both of those infections are considered to be major risk factors for hepatocellular carcinoma as well. So we do have two hepatic viruses, which are directly linked to, these, to the cancer. And at least in the United States, obesity is associated with those viral infections. So obesity and viral infection can lead directly to type 2 diabetes but also alcohol abuse, tobacco abuse, 
and even oral contraceptives play a role there. So obesity itself has been implicated for the genesis of insulin resistance. And we've talked about this in great length. And insulin resistance, of course, is paradigmatic for type 2 diabetes. Along with that, you get those pathophysiological responses I just alluded to, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. That leads then to the fibrosis and then cirrhosis, finally leading to HCC. So you can see that obesity is the beginning of this downward spiral. And it's a it's major reason for being linked to it, even at the early prodromal stages of liver disease, is because you get chronic low-grade systemic inflammation from obesity. And that involves the adipocytes, the skeletal muscle, the immune cells being activated, and also pancreas and liver involvement. So you get hypertrophic adipocytes, and they secrete, of course, free fatty acids because of lipase activity, together with various immune cells, both leukocytes and lymphocytes. They will release uh, a constellation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-8, 10, 18, and 17, and also an array of adipokines which then can lead to adipokine resistance. Here we're talking about leptin resistance and adiponectin resistance. All of this then can trigger the obesogenic state. So what's the axis of disease progression here? It appears that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which basically has to do with fatty liver de deposition, both of triacylglycerol and cholesterol esters, but that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease presents over several years. It's usually a cult, but it's characterized by a progressive accumulation of hepatocytic triacylglycerol. That's the major component. And it, of course, represents a pathophysiological spectrum of massive tag accumulation and associated steatosis. So once that happens, increases in tag accumulation occur along with increases in inflammatory response. And this leads to hepatic injury. And that then uh, is under that diagnosis is under the auspices of NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. All that progresses again to hepatic fibrosis, cirrhosis, and then you're on a tumorigenic tract HCC. Um, there's some statistics here, a few years old, but they still follow the same basic trends. Global NAFLD is up over about 30% now with a, a huge increase in the last 10 years, probably a doubling almost two and a half times what we had in the first decade uh, of the 21st century. So NAFLD is also linked to metabolic syndrome. And as I've been saying throughout all 11 of these lectures, on diabetes, NAFLD is directly linked to type 2 diabetes. So you get a constellation of both somatic and central nervous system associated pathologies, which become tightly linked to dysfunctional bioenergetics, the failure of signaling, both intra and extracellular, and then ultimately this pathological presentation arising from a neuroimmunoepigenomic codification uh, that's linked to changes in gene expression. So what's the etiology? Well, this has been termed in the medical literature, two-strike. And two-strike basically 
says that it's not simply lipids accumulate and then you get reactive oxygen and then that causes cells to become damaged and then either degenerate or simply act as a um, initial source for immune-based degradation. The real etiology coming now in at the NASH level of disease progression, remember it's non-alcoholic hepatitis, actually involves hormonal imbalances, including hormonal resistance, such as the insulin component. And then that's followed by a progress of hyperinsulinemia, which is then followed by switching to fatty acid accumulation and subsequent incomplete beta oxidation. And then that's linked to increases in reactive oxygen in the liver. Other toxic metabolites also build up such as oxysterols, that is the oxygenation and oxidation of nascent uh, and cholesterol ester accumulation in the liver and also in skeletal muscle and adipose. That will damage the liver directly and induce fibrogenesis, and that will lead to the emblematic presentation of steatosis, followed by increasing inflammation, and then you're on your way to hepatotoxicity and ultimately hepatocytic death. Ethanol will exacerbate that throughout the etiology. So you have plenty of obese drinkers, and certainly alcohol plays a very negative role in their um, disease-free progression, shall we say. Most people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NASH don't necessarily graduate to pass cellular carcinoma, but they do, of course, obtain metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, and sometimes uh, because of the NASH component and fibrosis can lead to a great deal of liver damage, right? Now, I want you to consider the bioenergetics here. Remember that the main bioenergetic molecule is adenosine triphosphate, and you get about four kilocalories per gram uh, from, uh, from protein and carbohydrate. From lipid, you get nine. And that ATP that is generated from protein, carbohydrate, or lipid is used for multiple bioenergetic phenomena. One of them is biosynthesis, such as nucleic acids, membrane lipids, complex carbohydrates, or proteoglycans and uh, glycoproteins. But ATP is also used to drive ion pumps in certain cellular situations, like in the central nervous system. ATP is sometimes uncoupled to generate some heat. That's the non-shivering thermogenesis. And ATP can also be used for direct chemical work, right? And it gets dissipated that way. This has to do with, for example, uh, muscle contraction, right? Now, I want to remind you something we came uh, into a heavy discussion with when we were discussing um, aging. And this is the fact that adipocytes... Uh, will generate the adipokine leptin. Leptin will bind to its receptor in the central nervous system. And it will act as a negative regulator in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus for NPY and AGRP, whereas it will be a positive stimulator in the pro-opiomelanocortin and in the cocaine and ephedamine-regulated nuclei. Now, leptin binding then, because it has positive effect on the POMC and CERT nuclei in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, will then decrease appetite. So that becomes your anorexigenic pathway. However, 
leptin uh, reception at the same time will inhibit neuropeptide Y and a GUTI-related protein neuron uh, neuronal expression. And those normally would increase appetite. Those would be orexigenic. So this is the whole regulation of that pathway. Now, remember that the proopio melanocortin gene itself, um, once the transcript is made, will make multiple polypeptides and via convertase activity will make ACTH, beta lipotropin, alpha MSH, CLIP, gamma MSH, the gamma lipotropin, the beta endorphin, as well as the beta MSH and metencephalin, right? So it's a huge protein um, locus with all of these different hormonal and regulatory proteins being synthesized from convertase or endoprotease activity. So the satiety factor uh, with this process is closely associated with the actions of leptin and neuropeptide Y. And so the anorectic peptide inhibits both the normal and starvation-induced feeding, and it completely blocks the feeding response induced by neuropeptide Y, and it's regulated by leptin, and all that again in the hypothalamus. NPY is a neuropeptide that is widely expressed in the CNS, and it influences many other physiological processes, including cortical excitability, the stress response, fight or flee, food intake, we already mentioned that, increases uh, the appetitive or the orexigenic pathway, right? It also, MPY is also involved in circadian rhythms, cardiovascular tonicity, and the neuropeptide functions through G protein coupled receptors to inhibit, because the GI protein, adenylate cyclase, therefore activating mitogen activated protein kinase K, right? That would be the normal process. And that will regulate intracellular calcium levels and also associate with the activation of potassium voltage-gated channels. So that's just a very brief summary of what's going on in the central nervous system. So POMC, more about that, is also associated with uh, phototropism. So when UV light strikes skin cells, and these skin cells are primarily composed of keratinocytes, it will activate uh, P53, which of course is a transcription factor. P53 turns on the transcription of the gene encoding POMC. This is now in the skin. Cleavage of the POMC protein produces alpha melanocortin stimulating hormone. That becomes secreted from the cells and it stimulates nearby melanocytes. Therefore, it's a paracrine effect to synthesize melanin in packets called melanosomes. And the melanosomes are transferred to the skin cells where they form a protective cap over the nucleus and thus protecting from UV light. The cap, the cap that's generated, the, that is melanosomal cap, protects DNA within the nucleus from being damaged by, from the damaging effects of UV radiation. The ACTA, the adrenocortical uh, uh, hormone, is secreted into the blood and may help reduce skin inflammation. At the same time, it stimulates the release of glucocorticoids, right, from the adrenal cortex. And of course, another uh, peptide fragment from POMC is the beta endorphin, and that suppresses pain of sunburn, among other things. Now, more on MSH. Besides melanogenesis, 
endogenous melanocortin receptor agonists. There's four different melanocortin stimulating hormone receptors. Endogenous melanocortin receptor agonists are involved in feeding homeostasis, body weight or body mass, and inflammation. Now, let's switch now to something about uh, transcriptional regulation. Insulin and the um, pro-inflammatory cytokine tumor necrosis factor, alpha, will stimulate the SREBP1C mobilized to the, from the endoplasmic reticulum, that's the sterile response element binding protein, class 1C, both insulin and TNF-alpha will stimulate the mobilization of that polypeptide from the ER membrane to the Golgi membrane. And, the, and there, there will be a protease activating on this sterile response uh, element binding protein. Further proteolytic uh, processing of that transcription factor will then allow it to move from the Golgi to the nuclear membrane and then enter through that nuclear membrane to the uh, chromatin where the S, now the mature SREBP1C will bind to the sterile response element. And what will happen because of this entire insulin TNF-alpha induction, right, by this mobilization through those multiple membranous pathways, it will stimulate the transcription of acetylcholine carboxylase, fatty acid synthase, and glycerol-3-phosphatase transferase, all of which will induce lipogenesis, right? Lipogenesis, both fatty acyl lipogenesis and um, because it's a sterile response pathway, you might guess, cholesterologenesis as well. Now, when insulin binds to its receptor, it will also trigger a response in the in, in the IRS1 and IRS2 protein families. Those will, those two proteins, the IRS1-2, will stimulate phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase. So IRS2 and IRS1 are important representatives of the IRS protein family, and they are very critical for insulin and insulin growth factor 1 signaling. Okay. So although they're quite similar in their structure, both RS1 and 2, again, these are insulin response substrates 1 and 2. These are proteins, right? Um, they do have tissue-specific differentiation. So the functions of IRS1 and 2 in skeletal muscle and liver with regard to the importance of metabolism, growth, and differentiation has been well described. So there are mechanisms contributing to IRS1 and 2 dysregulation, as you might guess, with obesity. And the obesity is also linked to the type 2 diabetes, right? So what, what I can tell you is IRS1 plays a dominant role in skeletal muscle, and it's absolutely critical for normal growth and differentiation of the myofibers. You also get insulin-dependent glucose uptake and glycogen synthesis from the IRS1. The presence of IRS2 in the skeletal muscle is actually negligible, so it's all mostly IRS1 for that insulin-induced glucose uptake in general role. The IRS2 in muscles is not really understood. In liver, though, IRS1 and IRS2 are important to mediate in insulin-independent regulation of glucose and lipid metabolism, and they complement one another in the diurnal regulation of 
of those two systems. So IRS-1 in the liver is far more important for signaling in the late refeeding period, whereas insulin response substrate 2 signaling is mostly it's in the liver, dominant in the period directly after food intake and during fasting. So it's important to note the expression levels of IRS-1s and 2 is different within the liver lobule which might be an explanation for the phenomenon of selective insulin resistance. Okay, it's still being worked out. Dysregulated muscular hepatic abundance and our phosphorylation status of the IRS-1 or 2 become a really important biomarker for the pathogenesis of insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and indeed sarcopenia in the form of muscle wasting. Okay, so again... Free fatty acids, if you get free fatty acids that accumulate in the muscle, this is due to obesity, free fatty acids will trigger protein kinase C theta. Protein kinase C theta will phosphorylate the IRS-1-2, blocking the phosphatidylinositol-3 kinase pathway. Now, I'll remind you that when IRS-1 and 2 normally stimulate after insulin binding to its receptor, the PI3 kinase pathway, that will stimulate protein kinase B, and that will positively regulate the movement and mobility of GLUT4 to the plasma membrane in the muscle. And that GLUT4 then will allow for glucose uptake. But if fatty acids accumulate because of the obesogenic state, they will actually block the GLUT4 translocation, as well as inducing PKC theta, blocking the IRS pathway. In the liver, it's a little bit different. In the liver, insulin binds its receptor, turns on that IRS-1-2 pathway, turns on the PI3 kinase, which then phosphorylates the protein kinase B. But what that protein goes on to do is decrease gluconeogenesis in the liver, but increase glycolysis. It's a direct effect on those pathways. Free fatty acids in the liver will block GLUT2 activity. And of course, there's no translocation because it's not an insulin-dependent GLUT transport to the hepatocytic membrane. But the free fatty acids also conduct the same inhibition of PKC theta, therefore blocking IRS, blocking PI3 kinase, blocking PKP, and therefore dysregulating the gluconeogenic decrease and glycolytic increase. So you get the idea. Fatty acids are immediately associated with obesity at the same time they are collinear because of dyslipidemia with the progression of type 2 diabetes. Okay, That's why I went through all that with you. So now we can talk about dyslipidemia. Okay, So high circulating fatty acid, of course, as I just mentioned, common in obesity. Fatty acylcholine metabolism blocks glycolysis in the liver. It does so by by increasing ATP production because of NAD and FAD reduction, right? Because that's what happens with fatty acid oxidation. So that high NADH level blocks pyruvate dehydrogenase and the glyceraldehyde dehydrogenase. Those are two enzymes, of course, from glycolytic pathway. And that will further inhibit hepatic glycolysis. So Low glucose utilization increases serum glucose, so you get the diabetic phenomenon, which increases then the pancreatic insulin secretion, finally leading, leading to insulin insufficiency and insulin resistance. 
This is how you get type 2 diabetes from obesity. Now, I know I went over that kind of fast, but I think that's okay because I think you understood the flow of how carbon from either carbohydrate or lipid are dysregulated when obesity becomes uh, commonplace. Because once obesity is there, you start getting this influx of free fatty acid, and that corrupts both the muscle, the adipose, and then ultimately liver regulation of insulin-induced activation. When that happens, you allow for gluconeogenesis, you allow for insulin resistance, you get full-blown type 2 diabetes, all because of dyslipidemia, all because of dyslipidemia. That's why I always say that diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, are really diseases of lipid metabolism. Because without the lipid component, you would never get the hyperglucosemia or the insulin resistance, which is, of course, hallmark of type 2 diabetes. And even with type 1 insulin, obviously, you, the initial effect is an autoimmune disease, but all sequelae from that inhibition of insulin secretion also completely causes dyslipidemia, right? So one is, one is a dyslipidemia caused by an autoimmune disease. The other is a dyslipidemia caused by obesity, okay? So ultimately, those two types of diabetes do have that in common, dyslipidemia and lipotoxicity. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Almost time's up. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, and you were listening on the Ides of March 2022. This is me saying bye for now. <laughs>